Romans chapter 9. The main idea tonight will be the unfailing word. The unfailing word. And let's take a couple moments to ask for help. Father, it's always a privilege to gather with your people, with those who are like-minded, who simply desire to know you. And we are here tonight because we want spiritual understanding. We want to know the one who saved us and be conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So may we understand what we're doing here is not just learning in an academic sense, but looking into a glass at the glory of the Lord to be transformed from one degree of glory into his image. And so, Father, we're completely dependent on you. And I, for one, entrust my whole being into your hands and we do this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans 9, 1. I've translated it from the original Greek text. Paul is speaking. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. This is what Paul's always doing, incidentally, in his epistles. He says, I'm not lying. My conscience is my co-witness, he says, with me in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, when I say that I have great sorrow and unrelenting grief in my heart, such great sorrow, that I was on the point of praying. This is what is known as an idiomatic imperfect tense, an idiomatic way of speaking. I was on the point of praying to be cursed and banned from Christ on behalf of my brethren, my siblings, my countrymen according to the flesh. Now by flesh he means physical descent, who are Israelites. Now later he's going to say in Romans 11.1, I am an Israelite. I am an Israelite. He uses himself as an answer to the accusation that people think that God has forsaken Israel, the people of Israel. And he said, that's curious because I'm an Israelite and I'm an apostle. So this, of course, recalls Moses in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 32. God threatens to wipe out Israel and begin all over again with Moses. And he said, I'm going to wipe their names out of the book of life. And Moses said, wipe my name out. Take my name out. And, of course, God never did intend to wipe out all the Israelites. But he was certainly testing the leadership of Moses, who was willing to have his name taken out of the Lamb's, or not the Lamb's book of life, simply the book of life. In other words to be killed under judgment for Israel. Paul says, I was on the point of praying. The word here means wish, but it's more strong. It means to pray, to be cursed and banned from Christ on behalf of my siblings, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs, and he doesn't say used to belong. 
He says, to whom belong? Still, the adoption. The adoption is the Greek word huiothesia, which means the adoption as sons, the position as the sons of God. To them belongs this position. And the Shekinah glory. The glory here is the Shekinah presence of God that was the with-abiding presence of Christ with Israel in their wanderings through the wilderness. The rock that gave them water. The rock was Christ. The presence was the Shekinah glory. And the covenants. And the giving of the law. And the priestly service. And the promises. All of these belong to the people who are Paul's kinsmen according to physical descent. Whose are the patriarchs? That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the 12 patriarchs, etc. And from whom, and this is the exclamation point, by physical descent is the Messiah himself who is over all God who is blessed forever. Messiah came through the line of Isaac and Jacob, through the line of Abraham, according to the flesh. Now, it's important to recognize, first of all, that the, the statement that Paul makes here is an idiomatic way of speaking. I would wish myself to be banned from Christ on behalf of my people. There was a time for Paul when he was feeling this kind of we call it today survivor's remorse. Someone is saved from a disaster and many of his loved ones are not saved from that disaster. They have what is psychologically called survivor's remorse. Why me? Why not all of them? Why not? And he's going to find out. And of course, he already knows during the writing of this where this is going. He already knows where this is going. And therefore, what I'm doing here is shooting an arrow. I'm, I'm kind of an archer. I'm shooting an arrow arrow into the deeper parts of Romans. He knows already when he's writing this where this is going. All Israel will be saved in Romans eleven twenty six. He knows that despite their unbelief, God is using their hostility against the gospel to bring in the Gentiles. And then he's going to bring in all the Jews who all the Jews who have ever lived in all of time. And he's heading toward the climactic declaration of all of Romans, really, at least one of them. There's probably three, but one of those climactic declarations is Romans 11.32 when he explains that God has consigned all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, that's all of humanity in all of its times, in unbelief, apistia, unbelief and disobedience, in order to have mercy on them all. This is the light that's on while Paul's writing. And so many times people stop short, and I've read it over and over again in commentaries. I've heard it on TV with evangelists. I've heard pastors teach it. I've taught it myself. You stop short, and you assume that Paul is talking about something that he isn't. The worst assumption that can ever come from Romans 9 is the assumption of a double predestination where God predestines some for salvation and others for damnation. That very assumption is a blasphemy made in ignorance, thankfully made in ignorance. It's a blasphemy made 
in ignorance that there is a predestination, a double predestination, some to heaven, some to hell, as it's called. To make that assumption is to fail to get the whole grip on all of Romans 9 through 11, which climaxes with the salvation of all of Israel in the context of the salvation of all mankind. And so it goes back to Romans 5, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 puts it. Romans 5 puts it this way. As Adam's disobedience brought everyone, all the human race, under condemnation, the obedience of the second Adam, Christ, brought life-giving justification to all humankind. And then we read in Romans 8, 8, 19 to 23, that that context, the context of the salvation of all humanity, is even in a bigger context, the emancipation or the liberation of all of creation from its current slavery to the corruption of sin and death. And so it's important to recognize Paul is talking here idiomatically with, and he has this light over his shoulder all while he's writing Romans, and that's why one of the, my titles for this Roman series, now in its 93rd increment, is Reading Romans with the Light On. Reading Romans with this light on, with the light on of knowing God's universal plan, centered in his Son, Jesus Christ, centered in Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, as Paul always makes that the rule of thumb. So we've been reading Romans all this time with this light on over our shoulder. I study with this light on over my shoulder. The adoption as sons of God still pertains to them, as Paul will reiterate in Romans 9.26. And I already went anticipating that on Sunday morning. The covenants that he speaks of have a special emphasis on the new covenant, which still pertains to Israel, as does the honorable historical heritage of the giving of the Torah. It still belongs to their historical heritage, the giving of the Torah and the priestly service. Even though it's not still practicable, the priestly service was given to Israel, and that still remains a part of their honorable historical heritage, not to be despised by Gentiles or Jews. And also, the patriarchs still belong to them. They still have a connection to the patriarchs, as he will later say, they are beloved for the patriarchs' sake. They are enemies of the gospel, yeah, but they are beloved by God for the patriarchs' sake, because of the patriarchs, because they are in the patriarchs. But that means... They are in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the sense that they are also in the seed that came through Isaac and Jacob, which is Christ. They're beloved because they're in Christ. And so, why do I say all of these still belong to them, and why does Paul do so? Well, he explains later, again, shooting an arrow, being a far striker tonight, going all the way to 1129 of Romans, The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, that is, without recall. They are irrevocable. God does not revoke them. And so, as Romans 9, 4 to 5, 
fire an arrow backwards, reaches back to Romans 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, then what are the advantages of the Jew? He has this debate with the opposing teacher. What are the advantages of being a Jew? And he doesn't answer that question fully until right here in Romans 9, 4 and 5. Well, to them belongs the adoption, the Shekinah glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the priestly service and the promises. Who's of the patriarchs and from whom? By physical descent came the Messiah, who also happens to be God overall, blessed forever. So Romans 9, 4 to 5 reaches back to Romans 3, 1 to 2 and the advantages of the Jew. But now Romans 9, 6, which we're going to look at right now, reaches back to the condition of the unbelief of the majority of Israel in Paul's time. So my question is, how is God's plan derailed by the unbelief of most of Israel in Paul's time or in our own time? Then I went further and I said, is God's saving plan and intent to save all of mankind in 1 Timothy 2, 4 derailed by the vast majority of humankind in unbelief in our time. That question is answered with an emphatic no. God's plan is not derailed. God's plan's already gone to the nth degree when Jesus Christ cried to tell us thy. Look at Romans 9, 6. But... It is not as though the word of God has failed. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the condition of Israel all the way back in Romans 3, 3. What if some did not believe? Will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And of course not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar, meaning everyone disbelieves the gospel. God is still true. So he's still on that subject. Paul can hold a thought for six or seven chapters better than we can. It takes me hours and hundreds of hours to even begin to think a little bit like Paul. Verse six. So I would translate it this way, giving the sense, expanding the sense. But their present condition, that's a condition of disobedience and enmity against the gospel, which again Go forward, he describes it in Romans eleven twenty eight to 32. Their present condition does not mean that the word of God has failed. Think of that. The word is used here, the logos. Their present condition, Paul's countrymen according to the flesh who are calling for his death in Jerusalem in Acts 21, whom he's brokenhearted about because they don't have this realization or this understanding, but he understands their salvation is secure in the future. But he's still brokenhearted, as you are. You understand the gospel of salvation for all, as Titus 2.11 puts it, the grace of God. You have members of your family. You have friends that you grew up with. You have members of your own household who reject it, and it's, it's heartbreaking to you because you want them so badly, you want them so urgently to understand, to have the spiritual understanding of this so great salvation. 
And you know their future is secure because of the saving work of God in Christ. But for now, it hurts. That's what Paul's experiencing. He's experiencing it, and he expresses this in Romans 9 and 10, as we'll see more and more. So he says, their present condition does not mean that the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are truly Israel. In God's view, that is. Now, what does he mean by this? Here's the trick. This is a really tricky passage. In other words, as he says in verse 7, the word of, let's, let's continue this because this is very important. Not all who are descended from Israel, that means genetically, physically descended from Abraham, are Israel. What does he mean? Well, first of all, the word of God has not failed by their unbelief. The mission of the word here, the word made flesh. What is the word that has not failed? The word made flesh. His mission has not failed. The word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is the only begotten son of God. And God gave his only begotten son so that the world would be saved through him. What is the faithful word other than the incarnate word, Jesus Christ? The mission of the word of God, the son of God, has not failed. That mission being the salvation of the world. God's plan and God's saving word is not derailed by human unbelief. And this is where the punch is going to come very hard on some Christians who have become the new Pharisees of our time. Paul has made it very clear that it is not of works that we have salvation. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And he's going to make that case again. But he's just as clear to say that it is not of your will either. Not of your will. He's going to say it explicitly in 9.16. In case I don't get to it tonight, I'll at least hit you with it first. It is not of him that wills. Not of the human will. Nor is it of him who runs. But of God who shows mercy. It is precisely to those who do not will to believe that God has mercy. So, that's Romans 11.32. I'm not just being atomistic, and by that I mean A-T-O-M-istic. By taking a verse here and saying, see what that says? That's double predestination. I'm taking the whole thing. I'm wrapping my arms around this whole argument here. Romans, the epistle, is an argument in itself. And Romans 9 through 11 as a segment of Romans, which people have had the audacity to call just a parenthesis. It's not a parenthesis. It's the main point of Romans. So, verse 7, neither. So, what does it mean that the word has not failed? That means the mission of the word, the son to save the world, including all of Israel, has not failed just because of the present condition of unbelief of most Israelites, and I would say just because of the condition of the unbelief of most of the population of the world. You think that derails God's plan? Who is God to you anyways? Who is he? 
Is he weaker than the will of men? What, what prevails in God's plan? His sovereign will to save or man's self-damning will? That's a question you can answer. I'm not, I won't answer that for you. You answer that for yourself. Verse 7, neither are all the descendants of Abraham, his children, that is, by the mere fact of their genetical descent. What he's saying here is not that some people who are Jews aren't going to be saved because they're not really Jews. What he's saying is what defines Israel is not physical descent, but Jesus Christ defines who Israel is as the seed of Isaac in whom all humanity are embodied. Watch how it unfolds. So neither all the descendants of Abraham, his children, that is by the mere fact of their genetic descent. On the contrary, now he quotes Genesis 21.12. So much of Paul's argument is an exegesis or an exposition of Genesis really from Genesis 12 through 26 especially, the whole story of Abraham and the patriarchs. On the contrary, quote, in Isaac shall your seed be called, Genesis 21, 12. In other words, your seed are such, Abraham, God is speaking to Abraham, your seed are such by being in Isaac's descendant. Israel is Israel because of being in the descendant of Isaac, which is Christ. Paul gets this, really slams this home explicitly in Galatians, which is kind of like why I want to go there next, Galatians 3.16, where Paul says, he doesn't say seeds meaning many, but one seed, which is Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations will be blessed. So God promises In your seed, Abraham, the seed called in Isaac, all the nations, including Israel, will be blessed. And that blessing includes not only justification in life, but the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom God promises to pour out on all flesh. In other words, your seed are such. They are identified as such by being in Isaac's descendant, which is Jesus Christ. Not just by being descended from Abraham, whether through Isaac or Ishmael, or through any of his six sons through Keturah. He had a son named Ishmael through Hagar. Well, Ishmael is going to hell. No, he isn't. That's the argument of a person who's totally ignorant of God. Yahweh appeared to Hagar when she was kicked out of the camp in Abraham's camp. And he said to her, your son, Isaac, I'm going to make him a great nation. Your son, Ishmael, rather. Your son, Ishmael. I will make a great nation. And that means he will make him among the nations in whom... Christ is and who are in Christ and blessed. That's a prophecy of his salvation, of the salvation of all the descendants of Hagar and Ishmael. So what he's saying here is Israel is Israel not by being descended from Abraham genetically, whether through Ishmael, 
or Isaac, or through later, Abraham at age 175 had six more sons through his wife named Keturah in Genesis 25, one through six, six more sons. And so your seed or your descendant, you're truly Israel, not just because you're descended from Abraham, whether through Ishmael or Isaac or the six sons of Keturah. Isaac is the son of Abraham who was spared in Genesis 22. He was spared as Abraham took him up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. God spared him, as we know. But he anticipates the son of God, the seed that would come about through Isaac, who was not spared, but freely given over on behalf of us all. Paul, you don't have to be a curse for your people Israel. Jesus Christ became a curse for Israel and for all mankind so that the blessing of Abraham might come not only to all of Israel, but to all the nations that's, again, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. So I'm not going by a Calvinistic playbook here. I'm not reading from the Reformed theology or from Southern Baptist theology or exegesis. I'm not reading from Roman Catholic theology. I'm not reading from a Tetelestai manual. We don't even have one. I'm reading from Paul. We started this whole thing by saying, better call Paul. And that was the introduction, 109 messages to introduce Romans. I'm speaking from the scriptures here. Isaac is the son of Abraham who was spared. He anticipates the son of God, the dead center verse in Romans 8.32, the seed called in Isaac who was not spared but freely handed over on behalf of all humanity in Romans 8.32. Paul need not be accursed from Christ on behalf of his fellow Israelites. Christ became a curse for all Israelites and all humanity so that the blessing of Abraham would come not only to all of Israel but to all the nations too and with that the blessing of the Holy Spirit that after all God promised to pour out on all flesh all humanity in all of its times in Joel 2:28 that is if you believe the scriptures or if you take them seriously Romans 9:8 that is, listen carefully, Paul's explaining here, that is, it is not the children of the flesh, that is by physical descent, who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered seed. Now that's a tough verse. What's he mean? Well, that's what we're here for. Paul is not saying that Israel, according to physical descent, will not be saved. That's the assumption. That's the assumption that you come to if you're a superficial reader of the scriptures where you spend a couple hours in the word a week and then 70 hours playing video games. That's the assumption you make when you read Romans in the King James and think you understand it and then spend the rest of the week analyzing sports clips. I'm sorry, it says, I'm told rebuke, 
reprove, correct, with all long-suffering and patience. If I don't do that, I'm not doing my job. Paul is not saying here that Israel, according to physical descent, will not be saved. He is saying that Israel is not considered to be Israel by physical descent, but by promise. That promise being the promise that he made to Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ. Israel is defined by Christ. Not by physical descent from Abraham. Christ is the singular seed of Abraham in whom all the nations will be blessed according to the promise. And receive the promised Holy Spirit. Part of the blessing, in fact, probably the biggest part of the blessing is receiving the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Pours out the love of God in our hearts. Imagine then, you know what the future is? The Holy Spirit poured out into the hearts of all humanity that has ever lived in all of its times. And that love being God's love poured out in the hearts of everybody. In resurrection human bodies. That's a pretty good future. No politician can prom- well they can promise that. But they can do what all politicians do from both parties or all three parties or wherever they come from. Promise and not deliver. God delivers on his promises and then some. Israel is defined by Christ, not by physical descent from Abraham. Christ is the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations will be blessed and receive the promised spirit. Therefore, Israel is the children of God by promise, God's faithful fulfillment. They are Israel by God's faithful fulfillment of this promise and by Jesus Christ's faithfulness as the one true Israelite, the one faithful Israelite who embodies all true Israel. So here's what the point is. Paul is arguing for a universal salvation. His argument is always for a universal salvation in all of his epistles. Paul is arguing for a universal salvation in the context of which all Israel is saved as well as all the nations, all of humanity in all of humanity's times. Here is where we find ourselves now still rooted in a fruitful insight that we received as a congregation years ago about the identity of the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16, the identity of the Israel of God. That insight amounts to a priceless piece of information That true Israel is embodied in Christ, who also embodies all of humankind. In Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Not only all the sons of Abraham, but all the sons of Adam are embodied in him. All Israel is saved. In the context of all humanity being saved, including all the Gentiles. 
Paul said, you know, what makes people arrogant is their ignorance of this mystery. That all Israel will be saved when all the nations, all the fullness, the totality of the nations comes in. Arrogance is ignorance of God's universally saving plan. And therefore, the assumption that I'm better than you are, my group is better off than your group, I'm in because of believing or making a decision or walking an aisle or repenting or something I did, and you're out. Failing to realize that at the cross, God said no to the identity of all humanity under sin and yes to all humanity as a new creation brought about by the action of God in Christ in which the wages of sin, which is an incomprehensible kind of death, was endured by God to the point where sin as an entity was extinguished along with death for us. So, we're coming back around again to the Israel of God. Consequently, and this is Paul's point in Romans, Gentile Christians who are prejudiced against Jewish Christians or against Jews as a people group have no basis to continue in their prejudice. Nor do they have any basis to continue in any bias in favor of themselves. On the other hand, Jewish Christians, and this is going on in Rome at the time, have no grounds to hold on to intolerance of Gentile Christians or Gentiles as a people group or to hold on to any bias in favor of themselves. And we could take this all across the races, the ethnicities, the nationalities, and the genders today in which there is a purposeful animosity being created between them to destroy the fabric of this nation and bring it under the umbrella of a worldwide tyranny. And we're suckers for it like you've never believed. This generation is suckers for that thing. They take the bait every single time. Man against woman, woman against man, the 67 genders all fighting against each other. 67 of them now, I guess. I mean, I've said this before, and I'm saying it tongue-in-cheek, because I'm, I'm not alone because I'm with the Lord. The Lord is with me. But speaking culturally, I'm screwed. I'm an old, white, cisgender, Christian male. Five strikes against me. Not only that, but as a Christian male, I believe in the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, which most of my Christian compatriots don't believe in. The way things are going, I'm going to be crucified too. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. I got no problem. And I'm, I, I'm sorry, but I will not apologize in any male toxicity clinics that I accept the gender I was born with. I'm sorry. I'm going with it. I'm going with it. I'm just doing that to show you the 
what, where we are today as a culture, we're going against each other in every single possible way. And if you can't invent enough of them with racism and ethnic arrogance and anti-Semitism and anti-this and anti-that, they'll invent new ones. If man against woman isn't bad enough, let's invent more genders to fight against more genders. It's an entire plan to disrupt the whole fabric of a culture and a civilization in order to bring it under the satanic desire for a worldwide tyranny, and we are suckers for it. So this gospel is the only thing that's going to save that direction. Not a politician, not a political party, not midterm elections. All right, that's my political commentary for the year. I'm done. All Israel is saved in the context of a universal salvation. The promise to Abraham that in his seed all the nations will be blessed, including Israel, in Christ, listen carefully, we've said it before, is an unconditional promise with a universal horizon. In you, that is, in your seed, Abraham, Genesis 18, 18, reiterated over and over again. In your seed, Christ, Galatians 3, 16, all the nations will be blessed. That's unconditional. He doesn't say all the nations will be blessed if they believe. All the nations will be blessed if they receive and accept Christ. All the nations will be blessed if they meet certain conditions. There are no conditions. It's an act of God in Christ. It's unconditional grace. It's uncontingent grace. It's so hard for people to grapple with because it actually has to surrender the final citadel of the human will. And it's weird because when you surrender the citadel of your free will, guess what happens? Your will, which wasn't free before, gets freed, liberated. All right. The promise to Abraham is an unconditional promise with a universal horizon. Here's the point, another point. All of Romans, we're entering to the end. We're going to the end phase. This is Operation Delta now in Romans. All of Romans centers radically in Christ and shows that emanating from the Christ event, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified, emanating from Jesus Christ and him crucified, all of Israel is saved in the context of all humanity being saved, and all of humanity is saved in the context of the emancipation or the liberation and transformation of all creation from its enslavement to the corruption that was brought about by sin and the reign of death. And that's Romans 8, 19 to 23. This entire act of universal salvation and creation-wide liberation is an act of God in Christ. It is by the action of what I call the passionate philanthropy of the triune God. The last citadel to fall is the human will. But fall it does in Romans. Fall it does. Romans 9. You ever hear somebody say, 
God doesn't send you to hell, but you can choose to go to hell. You can choose to go to hell all day long, but God won't let you. In fact, there is a hell, which is the ultimate result, the fatal, incomprehensible, horrific result of sin's reign. And guess who took that? Jesus. You can choose it all you want. Your choice to go to hell plus 50 cents won't even get you a cup of coffee anymore. In fact, if you go to some places, I don't know why people go to places to buy coffee where they spend $7 for a cup of coffee. Are you nuts? Man, if I still smoked, I'd be 7 bucks for coffee, 7 bucks for cigarettes. I'd be, I wouldn't eat. Be really skinny and not eat. And I would have been dead 22 years ago or so, but that's okay. All of Romans now ends up right here. Romans 9, 9. Look at this. For this word, he used the word logos again. This word, he already says it's not a failing word. So this word, meaning this unfailing word, is one of promise. God's word of promise doesn't fail. He says this. At this time next year, I'll come, and Sarah will have a son. Who is speaking? Yahweh is speaking. He comes visiting with two Terminator angels, one on each side. He comes, and Abraham has hospitality toward him. And he says, this time next year, Sarah, who's about 98 years old, will have a son. And, of course, she's in the tent laughing her head off. (laughs) So... That word, is a, this is a conflation. Paul quotes Genesis 18.10 and 18.14. He conflates the two. But notice what verse 10 says. Not only that, but even more to the point that Paul wants to make here, even more to the point, he says, how about when Rebecca conceived? Rebecca conceived two kids with one sexual act, one act of intercourse with Isaac, and it produced two children, Jacob and Esau. So he says, more to the point, he says this, and more to the point, what I'm making the point here, and I think Paul's making the point, is more to the point that it's not a human will thing, but a God will thing. He says, more to the point, when Rebekah conceived, two children by one act of intercourse with Isaac, our forefather, then he has a parenthesis in verse 11. He says, for of course, before the children were even born, say nothing of doing good or bad, the two words that he uses in 2 Corinthians 5.10 for the judgment seat, say nothing of doing good and bad in order that God's elective purpose would continue in effect, not from works, but of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Now, this is the basis for the whole spiritual life, incidentally. The older nature will serve the new nature, but that's another thing. Not of works, he says here. By the way, that's a quote of Genesis twenty-five, twenty-three. They didn't do anything. They were in the same womb by the same act of intercourse, and they weren't born yet. They didn't have a chance to do anything good or bad, and God said one's going to serve the other. The older will serve the younger. Not of works, he says in this passage, that is not human works, but of God who calls. God did this in order to show that his purpose, his saving purpose, will not reside from human works, 
but on himself who calls. And the word calls here goes back to Romans 4, 17. When God calls, it means he calls something into existence that didn't exist before. God calls into existence a new creation. Salvation simply means that God calls into existence a new creation in Christ Jesus. So not of works means human works. It is not of works... That says here in verse 12, 11 and 12, but of God who calls, that is God who calls into existence a new creation. That's the issue. The seed will be called in Isaac means that Jesus Christ, the son whom God did not spare, Romans 8, 32, who embodies all of Israel and all of humanity and all created beings, who is descended from the genetic line of Isaac, The son who was spared, Christ, why was Isaac spared? Because through him was going to be born a son who was not spared, who would be given over for the sins of the whole world in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In order to embody and save all of humankind and redeem all of creation, a new creation is being called into existence in him. And you and I got nothing to do with it except to be the new creation that's coming into existence by God's call. It means, now listen carefully, because this is where I'm slamming down some theology, faulty theology. This does not imply By a long stretch, this does not imply that some are not going to be saved. This does not imply that the line of Esau or the line of Ishmael is excluded from salvation. It does not imply that. Far from it. It means that God elected that the seed of Abraham, Christ, would embody and save all humanity, including the genetic lines of Esau and Ishmael. So that little phrase, not of works, resumes the dialectic that he had between himself and the false teacher in Romans 1.18 through 4.25. But here's the added twist that it is not of human will either. Not of human will either. You say, why are you getting loud sometimes? I'm supposed to shout aloud and spare not. That's also my mandate. Sorry. Shout it from the housetops. Sorry. Human beings cannot will their way to salvation any more than by running can they keep the salvation that they willed themselves into. Human beings cannot will their way to salvation any more than Jacob willed his way to being born or Esau. Neither can human beings choose to go to hell. What a weak argument that is. As if their will renders 
God impotent to save. Pathetic. To suggest that someone goes to hell because they choose that destiny is a blasphemy spoken in ignorance. See, I'm letting people off the hook here. Spoken in ignorance. Such a declaration enthrones man's self-damning will. Listen carefully. Man's self-damning will over God's saving will. God is willing that all saved are saved. None should perish. His will to save all Mankind. Moreover, such a statement rejects the truth that the man Christ Jesus, as the only mediator embodying both all of God and all of humankind, it doesn't mean he's just standing between God and man as a half man, half God. It means that he embodies all of God in himself bodily in Colossians 2 9, and that he embodies all of humanity in himself bodily. That's what it means. And therefore, when he gave himself, it was as a ransom for all, all, all in 1 Timothy 2.6. All of this will come into more clarity as we go down the road. Any gospel, and I'm using air quotes for those who are listening, any gospel that rests on a salvation through human free will is no gospel at all. Such a gospel, as Martinus de Boer said, I'm studying his commentary on Galatians, it's remarkable. Martinus de Boer, D-E, small D-E, big B-O-E-R, says, such a gospel, he says, speaking the true gospel, has little or nothing to do with a decision human beings must make. The true gospel has little or nothing to do with a decision human beings must make, but everything to do with a decision God has already made on their behalf, which is identified with God's enactment of salvation in Christ, a theologian who got it right. Romans 9.13, as it stands written, kathos gegreptai, a phrase used 14 times in Romans, as it stands written, as it stands written, as it stands written, plus 11 other times. Quote, God says, I have loved, that means elected, Jacob. Meaning, I have loved Jacob or elected him as the one through whom the Christ would come. And Esau, I have hated. Obviously, metaphorical language meaning I have rejected him as the one through whom Messiah would come. Malachi 1, 2, and 3. This is not a statement of double predestination, but an assertion of God's sovereign decision that the Christ would come through the line of Isaac through Jacob. Simply. Once again, this does not mean by any means, and I'm reading now because I took a lot of time to put this together in writing, and I'm going to put it in writing someday. Once again, this does not by any means indicate a double predestination as if God rejected Esau for salvation and elected Jacob for salvation. 
That's not what he's saying at all. How could it be then later in Genesis 33, 4 that when Isaac, or rather when Jacob was reunited with Esau, and he said to Esau, seeing you is like seeing the face of God. He saw the face of God a chapter before at Peniel. And when he saw Esau, he saw the face of Yahweh shining from Esau, the man whom God's going to send to hell, obviously. That's absurd. Furthermore, the people that came from Esau is a line called Edom, E-D-O-M. It later became Edomia. And the Herods were associated with it. But Edom, which is the line that came from Esau, is included in the nations that God says will be his heritage. In Amos chapter 9, once again, how could it be seeing Esau, Jacob said to him, I've seen your face, and it's like seeing God's face. Moreover, Edom, the nation or the descendants that derive from Esau, is specifically named by Yahweh himself to be among, quote, all the nations that are called by my name. Trying to be calm about this. And in Amos 9, 12, so that the remnant of man, all the rest of mankind, as well as Israel, and all the nations may seek me. This verse is also alluded to in Acts fifteen seventeen by James in the Council of Jerusalem, where he speaks about, quote, the rest of mankind besides Israel seeking the Lord, and all the Gentiles on whom my name is named, says the Lord, who does these things. Then he adds, this has been known from time immemorial. The same phrase used in Acts 3.21 where Paul said, Peter announced the apocatastasis panton, the restoration of all things was what God spoke through the mouth of his prophets from time immemorial. This was known from time immemorial that God would save all the nations and that he would name Assyria his heritage just like he names Israel and that he would name Sodom in her return to her restored creation, pristine creation, that he would call them my people along with Israel. This was known from the beginning. Why is it that when God spoke through all the prophets about a universal restoration, that the so-called prophets of today deny that very fact and think you're a heretic or a wild man or an an apostate for preaching what all the prophets have always said from the first time there were prophets. Something's wrong. Or as Hamlet said, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Not only Denmark. I'm going to quote a couple things when I close, and this isn't... I've heard the sermons. I've preached the sermons. Esau rejected his birthright. They go to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 15 and 16 and 17. And they say, and we said, and I said, he gave away his birthright, so he's going to hell. Esau and his descendants, however, are all included in the universal salvation proclaimed by all of God's holy prophets 
To understand Paul as proclaiming a double predestination, some to salvation and some to damnation, some to heaven and some to hell, is to profoundly misunderstand Paul. But more important than that, it's to profoundly misunderstand God himself. I'm going to give you two quotes and close with these two quotes. They're in bold in Barth, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, also called CD. We'll call it for short. Here's the, among a lot of seminaries, this is the most, one of the most famous texts, CD, Church Dogmatics, called CD, Volume 2, Part 2, CD 2-2, from Karl Barth. And I've taken two quotes from that passage, from that CD 2-2. The famous Moltmann did one of his last speeches on that particular thing. It was absolutely stunning and brilliant. First, regarding the election of Jesus Christ, this is the thesis. It's all bold in Christian dogmatics. Barth wrote this, quote, The election of grace is the eternal beginning of all the ways and works of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God in his free grace determines himself for sinful man and sinful man for himself. He therefore takes upon himself the rejection of man with all its consequences and elects man to participation in his own glory. That's a thesis that he works out with a couple hundred pages after that. The second thesis has to do with the election of the individual person. And I'd like to relate this specifically to Esau's case because since some preachers whom I've heard, and I did the same thing myself way back as a young preacher, they use Esau as a poster child for the godless man who's destined for hell. Because he chooses it for himself by rejecting his birthright. And this is especially brought to the fore when speaking from Hebrews 12 where Esau is called, and rightly so, he's called an immoral or irreverent person. And he's remembered as the man who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal, which the Hebrew calls Edom, for one meal, Edom. And who was rejected by Isaac, even though he sought for blessing with tears. Hebrews 12, 16 to 17. So think of Esau when you hear this phrase, the man who is isolated over and against God. What about that man? I'd have to say, what about me? Here's the thesis from Karl Barth, CD 2-2. This one, page 306, all in bold. Quote, the man who is isolated over against God is as such rejected by God. But to be this man can only be by the godly man's own choice. The witness of the community of God to every individual man consists in this, that this choice of the godless man is void Meaning, the godless man chooses to be isolated from God. God renders his decision void. Let me stop just for a minute. You've got two kids. One 
is careful, does what you say. The other one insists, I'm going to jump off that cliff into shark-infested waters. I'm going to do it. What are you going to do? Say, okay, I got to let you have your free will. If that's God, you can have him. Or, now I render that decision void, young man or young woman. I'm rendering your decision null and void. I'm going to save you from that fate, whether you like it or not. But he goes on to say this. This man, who is a godless man by his own choice, that he belongs eternally to Jesus Christ and is therefore not rejected, but elected by God in Jesus Christ. That the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice is born, B-O-R-N-E, and canceled by Jesus Christ. If you understand the cross, you get that. If you don't understand the cross, get to. He goes on to say, and that he is appointed to eternal life with God on the basis of the righteous divine decision. The promise of his election determines that as a member of the community, he himself will be a bearer of its witness to the whole world. And the revelation of his rejection can only determine him to believe in Jesus Christ as the one by whom it has been born and canceled. So here's closing. This is entirely in line with what I've been trying to tell you the past two Sunday mornings. That the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the glorious throne of the Son of Man that he ascended to in Matthew 25. There in Jesus Christ, on the cross, Christ crucified, God rejected the godless man per se, and there also rejected that man's choice to go to hell or to reject God. And there the godless man was elected in Jesus Christ. After all, when we were fatally sick, that is, under the control of sin, Christ, the great physician, died for the ungodly, says Romans 5, 6. And God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5, which means he nullifies the ungodly man's choice to remain isolated from God and to reject God. God rejects the godless man's choice to reject God. Does he have the right to do that? (laughs) I think so. How do we consign Esau to hell in the light of this reality then? And I know I'm going over time, and I'm sorry for that, but not really. I'm watching the Pirates too tonight, Tony. So I know you're taping them. I know. How can we consign Esau to hell in the light of this reality, a reality which is Jesus? In the same place, Calvary, God called the entire human race, both not my people, that is by virtue of their decision to reject him. And at the same place, he called that same people my people. He called not loved or hated like Esau, loved like Jacob. God recognizes neither the godless man or woman nor his or her choice to remain godless. God does not honor the godless man's choice to go to hell, in other words. God honors his own faithful word instead God's 
own will to save all of humanity. God honors the faithfulness of the word made flesh whose mission did not fail. He was sent into the world to save the world, and damn it, that's just what he did. All right. 